Good morning, beloved. This morning we're in John 15. John 15. And after I pray, we'll read it. Lord God, thank you for yet another day, another Lord's Day, to gather with the saints, to worship the King. I pray that today, Lord, you would work in a very special way to sanctify the truth of Christ, our living vine, to our hearts and his crucifixion and what it accomplished for us and what it destroyed through this teaching and the sermon this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you Abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we'll stop right there. Uh, we continue our study in the I am's pronounced by our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 6. We looked at, um, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door to the sheepfold. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in chapter 14, during his great uh, farewell discourse, um, we studied, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here now, in chapter 15, um, this also during the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse is John chapter 13 through 17. And we come now to the seventh I am statement of our Lord, and that is, I am the true vine. Now, his, his I am declarations harken back, of course, to the Old Testament, showing that Jesus shares the same identity with Yahweh, with God the Father, um, so th these are not abstract statements. I mean, these are directly connected, because they're all in John's gospel. They're directly connected to, to John's soteriology. The soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. So here Jesus says, um, I am the true vine. And in verse 5, you are the branches. So here we have an agricultural image between um, a great provider and those to whom provision is being made. Source and recipient, cause and effect. Um, next time, we're going to extend this study. Um, next time, um, I want to look into um, the second part of the Lord's teaching here, having to do um, with our productivity as Christians. Um, that is our responsibility to, to bear fruit. I want to look at that next time, 
And, and that bearing fruit um, is by virtue of remaining in, or that is abiding in, the true vine. It's a very important part of the text. So um, we'll, we'll do that part next week. And that'll be followed by Jesus' statement that he said to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. So we'll do today, next week, and then one week after that. But here the Lord's statement, um, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That's in contrast to, obviously, a false or corrupt vine. It's a metaphor that his uh, disciples um, would have immediately identified with as Israelite men. Now remember, the scene is the upper room. Jesus is just hours away from being crucified, which we'll see in Mark's gospel this morning by way of the sermon. In verse 1431, if you look back there, we read, Arise and let us go from here. And then in chapter 18, in verse 1, we read, um, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Okay, now, one of two things um, is taking place here. Um, either they stood up at this point in chapter 14, and Gene, Jesus continued his discourse through uh, chapter 18, or up to chapter 18, and then they leave this room. You know, we, we can relate to this, right? We, we have dinner, fellowship with someone, we stand around, um, we, we, we enjoy the night, we say, I got to get going, and then it's 15 or 20 minutes before we actually leave, right? So perhaps that happened, or they may have left the upper room in chapter 14, verse 31, and then they actually leave the city in chapter 18, in verse 1, and cross the Kidron, and so on. So whatever's the case, whatever it is, he senses and he knows their despair so he wants to draw this analogy for them after all of this um, intense teaching this night in the upper room. And he draws from an ancient um, Jewish tradition, a very vivid metaphor, uh, metaphor um, is the vine was Israel's national symbol. I mean, this, this was imprinted on their coins. This is like stars and stripes to us, the vine. So whether Jesus left the upper room and stopped um, en route somewhere and grabbed hold of a literal vine, or whether he was standing in front of the temple, or whether they were in, still in the upper room looking through the window to the beautiful gate, known as the beautiful gate, of the temple, um, which around that gate was a golden vine, for which Josephus records that it was so large, it had clusters the size of a man, covered in gold. That is the vine on the temple over the beautiful gate. So whether he grabbed hold of one or he's looking out at the temple, whatever the case, um, they would have understood um, the, the, the metaphor and its, its connection to Judaism. And it represented the covenant people of God planted and tended by him for ages. Look at Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Israel, however, did not yield, as you know, Good fruit. 
Look at verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Um, they certainly would have known. Isaiah chapter 5, you'll, you'll recall this in our study of Mark, in Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants. Look at it. I, I don't have it up. You'll have to turn to it. Let me sing for my beloved my song. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out wine, a wine vat in it, and looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God is the vine dresser. Planting this vineyard, he waits for a good crop, for, for sweet wine. It produces sour, bitter grapes. Therefore, it will be trampled down. It will be destroyed. Why? Because of idolatry and unfaithfulness, judgment would come upon vineyard. Listen to Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant, a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Now listen to this. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, that is to, to, to idols. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. In other words, the, the more Israel prospered, the more they sinned. Generally in the Old Testament, Whenever Israel's depicted um, as a vine or a vineyard, it's usually in context to God's chastisement. Most often. Listen to Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? So here's Israel, portrayed as this vine. They are to bear lush fruit. What, what, what does that look like? Simply, faith in God's prominent promises and obedience to God's commandments. Under the old covenant, made at Mount Sinai. And they resort to idolatry time and time again. So when the messianic dawn ages and the Messiah shows up on scene, he finds Israel bearing little or no fruit. So here now, in his final I am statement, the Lord Jesus Christ, just hours before the cross, declares that he 
is the embodiment of Israel. He's the embodiment of Israel, which is to say he takes place of Israel. He fulfills Israel as God's true planting. He's the fulfillment. In other words, God's vineyard holds only one vine, Jesus Christ, who is God's true Israel, the true Israelite. So no longer is Israel automatically seen as vines growing in God's vineyard. Mere ethnic descent without obedience means nothing. So Jesus says, I am the genuine vine. I'm the real deal. Everything that came before me, though it was good in the sense of giving you a picture, providing a shadow, a type, something needing proper fulfillment, okay, I'm here. I am God's true Israel. I am the true vine. John, the author, remember how he introduces Jesus in the first chapter? He introduces the Word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's the true tabernacle. He dwelt among us. He pitched a tent of flesh among us. So everything that the, old, that the tabernacle in the Old Testament had within it all points forward to something greater, and here he is. Every piece of furniture, every stack of bread, every glowing candelabra, it all pointed to him. The vine, the temple. Here he is. All symbolized in the tent of meeting. God with us, Emmanuel. Remember when Jesus was born? And Joseph, during the, the, the slaughter of Herod, Joseph takes Mary and takes Jesus and they flee to Egypt. And thus the scripture shall be fulfilled, Matthew says, for out of Egypt I have called my son, my true son. In Exodus, we read of Israel as God's firstborn son. Jesus is the fulfillment. So Jesus here says, I am Israel, I am the true son of the Father, I bring forth fruit, not wild grapes. Now remember, the, the vineyard was uh, one of Israel's most prized um, symbols as regards um, its national inheritance. So Jesus uses this symbol to express judgment on Israel's leaders in Mark chapter 12 when he gives, as I said earlier, the parable of the wicked tenants. Remember that? The vine dresser, the owner of the vineyard, he sends his messengers and they bop them on the head and eventually they kill them. And finally he says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll receive him. And they kill him and they throw him over the wall. And they became infuriated, knowing and realizing that Jesus was speaking of them as the wicked tenants. They were infuriated. They were so angry that they wanted to lay hands on him. But they couldn't, because it was not yet his time. 
They were hot-headed. So here in John 15, Jesus here is revising Israel's assumption about territory, about religion, as being only theirs. When it was always meant for them to be what? The light to the, the nations. Jesus says, God's vineyard has one vine. It's me. I'm the true vine. An attachment to God comes only through me, one covenant, not two. I'm the fulfillment. So Jesus points away from the vineyard as a place or a territory of hills and valleys and streams, a temple and a city, and he spiritualizes the vineyard and the land, and he said, I am the true vine. I am Israel. He fulfills it all, friends, and nothing less. Amen. Nothing less. So Jesus is the reality where Israel was but the type. So this is the backdrop for which Jesus speaks. Um, Ethnic Israel is, is judged. He is true Israel. Because only he completed what the first Adam failed to carry out. Failed to carry out God's will perfectly. He is the last Adam. He also completed what the first Israel failed to do, and that was to uphold God's word obediently. He's the last Adam. He's the true Israelite. So the theological implications of his analogy would not be missed by any thoughtful first century theologically minded man. You wouldn't miss this. Remember, Israel was considered the center of the world. Jerusalem was the center point of the land, and the temple was the center of Jerusalem. The center of everything. So Jesus says, there's only one true attachment, and it's me. I'm the door. I'm the great shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm living water. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. The only means of entrance into the true Jerusalem is through me. The only means of temple entry is to be inserted into me. I am the temple. Tear down this temple, and in three days, we'll raise it up again. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the promised land. Jesus is the, the, the true Israel of Almighty God. He's fulfillment of it all. So regardless of how Jewish one may claim to be, they're all dead wood if they're not in the true vine. Amen? Ethnicity doesn't get you in. Christ gets you in. There is life and no other, so you're dead wood. As D.A. Carson points out, and I quote, this would be an especially important point for John to emphasize when writing this gospel to Jewish refugees after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus is the true Israel, and salvation is found only through union with him. So 
as Jerusalem and its city went up in smoke and the temple was raised to the ground, that the point was and the teaching was, look, the temple, he's ascended. He's the one who died. He's the one who tabernacled among us. He gave his body. He laid it down. He had power to lay it down, to take it up again, and then he ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. Look to him. Don't look back to Jerusalem. I am the true vine. So the nation of Israel and the temple have been superseded. We all say amen now. Amen. Thank you. So abiding here in the true vine um, primarily speaks of something that is true of us because it's something he's done in us. Okay, this is a supernatural work of God, regenerating us. He draws us in. He's the life source. He gives us life. He indwells us. We've been joined to Christ by God's grace. He initiated it, and he sealed it. You didn't do anything. He did it all. And then as we go on to look next week, because we've been brought in, we're called to continually abide in him. Amen? So Jesus' life comes into us. His life courses through the branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. We derive life from the vine and no other. The vine sends his life into the branch. I was speaking with someone the other day about you know, bearing fruit of the Spirit. You'll be in a world of trouble if you focus on fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You don't focus on the fruit of the Spirit. You focus on the life source, the vine. You press into the vine. You abide in the vine. And fruit, guess what? It, it appears. You don't produce fruit. We don't produce it, we bear it. You bear it. So you got to focus on the vine and not the fruit because you're a branch, as we'll see next time. We'll see in verse 7 that his word, okay, his word, verse 7, his word abiding in us is the same as Jesus abiding in us. It's the same. Jesus is the, he's the word. His thoughts, in me. His words, in me. His voice speaking in me, to me. Communion with him, abiding in him. Life. Life. So without this connection to Christ, who's the source of power, we will be lifeless and we will be fruitless. That's why religion kills. You know, just to close up by way of application, okay, we, we understand Jesus is the life source. Amen. He's the vine. He's true Israel. One covenant. It's called grace. Gimmicks and books on, you know, spiritual formation. You hear these things? That's not the vine. Gimmicks that come through evangelicalism, they're not the vine. What, what happened to the prayer of Jabez? Back in the 90s, was it the 90s? 
99, 2000, everyone's praying the prayer, praying, praying the prayer of Jabez. That's a gimmick. Yeah, it's scripture. You can pray it. Of course you can pray it. You can pray any other portion of scripture. But these kind, you know, these kind of gimmicks that, that come through, these kinds of trends and, and stunts in modern evangelicalism, they're not divine, friends. You know, how many books on church leadership or, or on um, how to lead come out in the course of a decade? I don't know, but a lot. And then the approach changes every three years. Those aren't divine. They're tools, some good, some not so good, some terrible, some to be thrown in the trash. The vine is not the church. The vine is not the church. Now, they're intrinsically connected, amen? For we are in a mystical union with the head, Jesus, we're the body. So they're intrinsically connected, but the vine is not the church. The church is not the vine. So you don't trust the church for your salvation. The church is made up of fallen, broken, albeit being sanctified people. Now, they, the branches, they, they can point you to the vine, amen? They, they, they can remind you of the vine, but the branches aren't divine. The branches are not divine. Only the vine is divine. <laughs> Sometimes I go street on y'all, so I have to back up. He's the vine. They can help you get to Jesus. The church can help you get to the true vine, but they can't change you. Only he can. The danger is that you'll end up exchanging the vine for the church. That's why I'm always cautious about, always worried about, always leery about people, professing Christians, who, who love liturgy too much. Liturgy's good, amen? I love liturgy, the, the order of service creeds, confessions, things like that, but they can become a substitute for the vine. They're not the vine. They're there to point you to the vine, but many times they become an end in and of themselves, and they become idols, and they need to be destroyed. It's important. This happens in Catholicism right now, every day. And some churches that are, that are orthodox but heavily liturgical, and, and the preacher never points out the difference between liturgy that points to the vine and the vine himself. So you're banking on your baptism for salvation rather than the vine who gives life. Close friends are not the vine. 
Mature believers are not the vine. They're another branch. I don't care how mature they are, how brilliant they are, they're a branch. Amen? They might be helpful. They can be of great encouragement, but they're not the vine. Go to the vine first. Before you go to a branch, go to the vine first. Amen? And if you're not sure, if you're a little confused, go to another vine who, who knows what they're talking about, who, who, who are abiding, uh, go to another branch who are abiding in the vine and know what they're talking about, and they'll direct you to the vine. They'll counsel you according to the vine, the word. Amen? You are not the vine. You know, some, some like to think of themselves as a kind of lifeline. You know, what are people going to do without me? Let me tell you, newsflash, you're replaceable. <laughs> like that. There's no pastor in the world who's not replaceable. Spurgeon was replaceable. Calvin was replaceable. Luther's replaceable. MacArthur's replaceable. They're branches. You're not the vine. A lot of people adopt a kind of mini-Messiah complex. Don't do that. You're not the vine. Because you're not divine. Your intellect is not the vine. Your ability is not the vine. Your gifts are gifts. They're not the vine. Christ is the vine. Jesus, I'm the true vine. So abiding means there is a relational aspect to this. It's called the doctrine of union, for which we'll look at next time. And the Father, will see, loves those. The Father loves those who are redeemed by his Son, Christ, the, the true vine, so much that he will do whatever is necessary to ensure that the branches do what? Bear fruit of the vine who is life. He'll trim them back. I love vineyards, man. Love them. You ever stay and overlook a vineyard? It's beautiful. Where do we go? There's Napa and then there's like Temecula has some nice ones too. You know, you can read, I read an article in a magazine and we're gonna look at this next week. Vines cannot produce abundant faith unless they're stressed. You're from the wine country. <laughs> unless they're stressed. Pruning. Like they'll, they'll, I, I, I'll, I'll show you next week. I'll read a quote. Modern day vineyards, vine dressers, will purposefully cause drought on, on one side of a row and, and to stress the vines while they water the other and then they flip-flop to stress them and then they grow and provide or produce greater abundance. This is what he will do to those that are his. He'll stress the branches. He'll clip them back. That's called sanctification. 
We'll look at that next time. Amen? He's the vine, the true vine. Father, we thank you for your gracious, precious gift of sending your son, our life source, our way of entry, the one who quenches our thirst, the one who feeds our soul, the one who guarantees our own resurrection, who, by your spirit, have already resurrected us in spirit, bringing us to the truth. For this we thank you. Help us to rest and abide and trust in the vine, your son, our Lord, for his sake. Amen. Questions, comments?